Welcome back to our teaching in the book of John. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter seven, dealing with Jesus at the Feast of Booze. And if you recall, it was Jesus' brothers, that is, his own flesh and blood brothers uh, from Joseph and Mary, who really did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, wanted Jesus to go up at this opportune time in their minds to go up to the Feast of Booze there to make a declaration of his Messiahship. And their claim was, if Jesus was really the Messiah that he was claiming to be, he would not just simply hang around Galilee and Capernaum doing all of his signs and wonders, but he would go to the very center of the religious place in Jerusalem of the Jewish faith, that is, at the temple in Jerusalem during this festive time, Feast of Booths, because it was the expectation of many Jews, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, all the same, it was the expectation of many Jews that the Messiah would come at such a time. And so his brothers wanted him to go and make a declaration of that Messiahship there. And But Jesus was unwilling to go. And he just simply said that it was not his time. It was not the time that he should make such a declaration. It was not such a time that a fulfillment of these things should come. But the mindset of Jesus was that he would always do what was the will of the Father, according to the timetable of the Father. If Jesus was to do anything in Jerusalem, in just a few months, he would go to Jerusalem where he would be crucified and rise from the dead. But nevertheless, Jesus sent his own brother, told his brothers, you can go. He's not going up to the feast in order to make such a declaration. And that's key to understanding what Jesus actually did and understanding why Jesus waited a while. So later on, Jesus went to the feast, but he did not go up to the feast with the pomp and circumstances that his brothers desired, but he went and he began to teach in the temple. While teaching in the temple, of course, the people were expecting him and finally seeing him, they began to question him as, as, as to his knowledge of scripture and from the knowledge of scripture back once again to the origin of Jesus. So this whole issue about whether or not he is the Messiah or not and where the Messiah should come from, should the Messiah come from Galilee? And we've talked about that already. So always make sure you see the previous video. Should the Messiah come from Galilee or not? But nevertheless, in all of that, Jesus just simply told the people that his origin was from the Father and that he came to do the Father's will. And in the end, as we came to a close, he began to tell the people that the day would come, they would seek him, would not find him. And ultimately, where he was going, returning back to the Father, they could not come. Why? Because they did not believe in him. So therefore, there is no way unto God except faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is Jesus as son of God, son of man, faith in Jesus alone. So therefore, his whole point was they would not be allowed into the kingdom of heaven because they did not believe in him. And so the people not understanding this as they didn't understand most of most, uh, hardly anything that Jesus said and did began to wonder, was Jesus going to go to either the Jews that were a part of the dispersion or even to the Greeks and began to teach them? So what did Jesus actually mean where he was going? They could not come. 
And with that, <laughs> we ended chapter seven. All right. Now, this the end of chapter seven should be pretty brief. Uh, uh, I don't see a lot of difficult material at the end of chapter seven. But anyway, so let's just go to chapter seven. Let's finish it out. And then we'll prepare ourselves for chapter eight. All right. Verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. So now we get to the final days of the feast. Remember, this is Feast of Booze, as we see early in the chapter. Feast of Booze, also called Feast of Tabernacles, or you can call it sometimes Sukkot, but Feast of Booze. In the ceremonies of the feast, we've come to the last day of the feast. But in the ceremony of the Feast of Booze, there would be a daily procession. The priests would make a daily processions from uh, the Gihon Spring, which was a, a place of water in Jerusalem, a Gihon spring to the temple. And as they would come from the spring to the temple, they would uh, sing Isaiah, what is it, 12 and 3. Therefore, joyously, you would, you would joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. I believe that's what Isaiah 12 and 3 says. But the idea, they would sing this song in a procession as they would come uh, from the Gihon spring with, with water that they drew from that spring in a golden vessel <laughs> and take it back to the temple. And it would be the seventh day, the final day of the feast, which would be the greatest day. So that's what it means by on the great day of the feast. It'd be the final day when they would have all of these things that are done. And this is the, 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 the big day, the big day of the feast that they are doing these things and it is at this time that Jesus responds and that and not so much responding to what they are saying, but he's responding to what they are blindly doing. OK, but let me draw also some further analogy for you guys. One of the reasons why they did this is because, number one, drawing the water uh, from the spring of Gihon, bringing it back to Jerusalem, was a reflect was a reflection back on how God provided for them during their 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, as they journeyed 40 years in the wilderness by Moses leading them out of Egypt and finally through Joshua leading them into the promised land, God provided for them in the wilderness. And one of the primary needs that you would have would be water. And we remember the occasion that God provided water from the rock. So this was in reflection of that in memorial, remembering what God had done, being thankful what God had done. Also, this was also believed when you look at the prophecies of Isaiah, what is it, 43, 55, 58, those particular chapters that speak of being refreshed by living waters, okay? And so they believed that it would be during the time of the Messiah, when the Messiah would reign, he would bring such issues like this to pass. He would bring peace, he would bring prosperity, and he would bring spiritual revitalization. So you got to see all of that. So they're thinking of the past 
and they're also considering the future, the future to the which the Messiah would do these things. The nation would benefit because of the blessings that the Messiah would bring. This refreshing of both spiritual waters and this refreshing of the nation, the peace, the literal peace, the literal prosperity, the physical prosperity, the whole rejuvenation that the Messiah would bring. So they looked back and they also looked forward. Now, remember, as we look in the wholeness of these events, Jesus is here at the Feast of Booths. The people are arguing and wondering, musing as to who he is, and Jesus continually declaring himself to be the Christ, to be the son of God, to be the one through whom these blessings should come. So we can see now as we enter into this high point of the festive activities, it moves Jesus. Notice what it says. Jesus stood and cried out. And that's important. I don't want to get into it. I'm trying not to become excited. No, Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, remember he would... Jewish rabbis would always sit and teach, okay? And in the backdrop, all of this stuff going on, going on about Jesus, go back and look at the previous video of what we did in chapter seven. And so now you're at this festive time and the music is going and the Levitical priests are singing. It's the great day, the most, they, what they consider the most solemn of days. And all of this thing, they've been thinking about Jesus. Is he the one? Is he not? And now they got this water talking about you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Looking forward to the coming Messiah, we can see Jesus full now Instead of doing his normal sitting, he stands. Instead of doing his normal teaching, he cries out. And what does he say? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am that Messiah. I am that fulfillment. And it is only in me and through me, by faith in me, can you have your thirst satisfied. Can these things that you're hoping for be fulfilled? Why? You believe that the Messiah will fulfill all of these things. I've been saying to you all along, I am he, or even as we see in the gospel of John, I am. And you have been believing that you will have peace and prosperity and spiritual satisfaction that only the Messiah can bring. I am he. So therefore, if indeed you are truly thirsty, Come to me. It is not in these foolish rituals, but it is in me that you'll find satisfaction for your soul. Okay, I wasn't supposed to preach, but I, I did it anyway. But anyway, and that's what Jesus is saying. So you can see Jesus, get, he's full at that time spiritually as he's moved to tell the people, put your faith once again in me. And that's what he means by if you let him come to me and drink faith in Jesus. Then he says, verse number 38, to the one that believes in him shall have continual satisfaction in his spirit. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost belly shall flow rivers of living water. And I like the way the King James Version says it, from his, out of his belly <laughs> shall flow rivers of living water. But anyway, this deals with the idea of continual spiritual satisfaction. 
and this continual spiritual refreshing and satisfaction comes from the very innermost being of the individual. So it speaks, Jesus speaking, of course, in spiritual terms, in spiritual terms. Remember how he said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, 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 blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts after what? After righteousness. Why? Such a one will be filled. So you understand, you have a desire. You understand, number one, that you are incomplete. You understand that you are unable to do the things that set you right with the Father. You understand there is sin in your life. You understand all of your sinful imperfections that never allow such a one to be received, but nevertheless received by God. But nevertheless, you desire acceptance with God. You want to be in the presence of God. But what can you do? What can you do? You hunger and you are thirsting after these things. You understand that these things have already been done for you. How? In the Messiah, in the life that he lived. He lived the life without sin. And therefore, we are this sinless life is set to our account. And he paid the death. He died the death. He paid the price for our sinfulness. So therefore we don't have to, the whole point is we understand what Christ has done. We receive the full merits of what Jesus has done. And this is given to us by his spirit. And so therefore what? The believer's life is constantly refreshed by what Jesus has done by the indwelling spirit. And I went way too fast in that. <laughs> what was he saying? He spoke of this refreshing, this water that continually refreshes the one who is thirsty. This, he says, was the Holy Spirit. Okay. So that's what I was getting to in a premature fashion. The Holy Spirit refreshes the believer's life. It is a continual stream of refreshing as a continual reminder of what Jesus has done and completed for us, that we are now acceptable with the Father. It is a continual reminder that Jesus is our ultimate and complete sacrifice for sin. We no longer have to worry about our acceptance with the Father as long as we are believing in Jesus as our atoning sacrifice, as our Redeemer, as our Savior, as our refreshing the waters. But the Spirit only comes to indwell. No, those who believe in him were to receive the spirit only indwells such a one who believes in Jesus. Do you believe he is the son of God? Do you believe that he is the son of man, that he died, that he is God from heaven, son of God, who came in human form, son of man, to die for your sins and rise from the dead? Such a one received this gift. And later on, we're going to talk about it in John, what is it, chapters 14, 16, and even thereafter, the Holy Spirit that shall be given to those who believe in Jesus to take up a permanent residence in them. So let me come in on that. 
because I don't want to get into a bunch of theological talk. So what Jesus was speaking of was to the ones who would have faith in him, they would in the future, that is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this happened on the day of Pentecost. Okay. We know, Oh, Oh, I almost slipped into that. But in a nutshell, in general speak, this happened on the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's when, that is the time when the words of Jesus here was fulfilled and the Holy Spirit indwelled those who believed in Jesus in a permanent sense, in a permanent sense. And this is what Jesus is speaking about. And the benefits thereafter that should come, the refreshing, the, the rivers of living water, the spiritual refreshing that should always come because of the Holy Spirit's permanent indwelling of the believer. And this is what Jesus is giving reference to. Okay. So let me say this first. This is not to say that the Holy Spirit was not given to those who believe, say for instance, Old Testament believers and whomever else. All right. The Holy Spirit has always been in operation in this world and will always be in operation in this world. You see that as early as the book of Genesis and the spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the earth. The Holy Spirit has always been there. The Holy Spirit was there during the time of the Old Testament saints. However, the Holy Spirit never permanently indwelled people. Remember, recall the words of David in Psalm 51. Please do not take your spirit away from me. That is the Holy Spirit would only come upon certain believers to do certain functions at certain times. And then the Holy Spirit would depart from them. It was never permanently indwelling them. Even for the prophets themselves, the Holy Spirit only came upon the prophet when it came time for him to speak or act according to the will of God. And then the Holy Spirit would depart. Now, the Holy Spirit would always be with them. That is, as Jesus said, dwelling alongside of them. But for the believers in Christ Jesus, after he has been glorified, that's what it means by here. Jesus had not yet been glorified. That is when we see that glorification spoken of in John chapter 12, crucifixion on the cross, resurrection from the dead. So, but before that time, the Holy Spirit dwelt alongside of God's people, but the gift for the saints, believers in Jesus after Jesus resurrection, Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit would dwell inside of them. And this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus would teach, will never leave. That is, once the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, he never departs. Now, there are a number of things that I can talk on that, that would be tangent to this particular teaching that uh, uh, related but not directly to this teaching, okay? I have to make another video about that. Say, for instance, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or even in those facts that I was giving you about how the Holy Spirit did not indwell the believers in a permanent sense before the resurrection of Jesus, okay? 
I'm not going to get into those things, but they are in the text as we move along. And we'll see that even in the book of John. But I just simply want to make you aware of those issues. So what was Jesus simply saying? Here, he is back to the text here. Let's get right back to the text in John because that's what we're dealing with. Jesus is moved in seeing all of the pomp and circumstances as the Jewish priests are going from the spring Gahan with this water to the temple singing Isaiah 12, and I believe it's again verse number three, of, of people joyously drawing water from the springs of life, okay? And he simply comes to simply say that he is that life-giving spring, and it is because of faith in him that one will receive these waters of life, and the water of life that refreshes, that spiritually continuously refreshes the believer in him is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will not come to permanently indwell those who believe in Jesus until after he has risen from the dead. And that's the whole issue of this particular point. Okay. Now, what is the result of these things? Verse number 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words were saying, this is certainly, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Okay, now let's talk about this. So what happened when Jesus said that it was something moving about it? Because notice now, remember, go back to the previous video and understand the context. The people had a division. They were st still divided over whether is he the Christ? Is he not? Who is he? Is he claimed to be? Some are saying he's a good man and other people are saying that he was a deceiver. And this primarily came from uh, the Pharisees teaching concerning Jesus. And some of them saying he had a demon and all of these. So the people still were divided. So once again, we see this same division amongst the people about Jesus as now he has Jesus preaching about this living water and coming to faith in him. And so what are they saying? Some are saying he certainly is the prophet. That is uh, Deuteronomy 18 and 15 when Moses said uh, that God will surely raise up a prophet from amongst you like me. Whatever he says, you listen to him. Anybody who does not obey the voice of this prophet will be judged, will come under judgment. So they believe that he is the prophet spoken of by Moses, not understanding, notice, not understanding that the prophet spoken of by Moses and the Messiah are the same person. They didn't understand that. So they had a misunderstanding of the prophet as well as the Christ. They didn't see them as the same individual. And this is why we see in verse number 41, where others were saying, what? He is the Messiah. When you see Christ, anointed one, Christos, Messiah. 
He is the Messiah. So you see this divided belief. They didn't understand that the prophet and Messiah were the same person. So therefore, some were saying he's the prophet spoken of by Moses. Others are saying, no, he is the Messiah. They see a distinction. They see a difference in the persons. And then even other people had issues once again with his origin. Remember, we've been talking about this origin issue in chapter seven already and a number of times. They have a problem with Jesus coming from Galilee because they do not know, as we've been talking about, ever since John chapter 5 and possibly allusions earlier of Jesus' true origin from heaven and also of Jesus' literal origin that he was born in Bethlehem. They did not know that part. All they know about is from the return from Jesus' family return from Egypt Jesus living in Galilee and being brought up in Nazareth of Galilee. So they did not know he was actually born in literally Bethlehem. And also remember what we said about Galilee. Galilee is considered to be the nothing town. Galilee is considered to be no, no great place for biblical scholarship. No great, as we'll say in our day, a seminary, Shiva for them. No great rabbinic schools in Galilee. So this is considered to be nothing and ignorant people are in Galilee. So they look down on Galilee and Galileans. And so what is this third group? Some are saying, they're saying the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So there's a lot of negative derision when they say that. You're talking about he's the Christ. How in the world can he be the Christ and come from Galilee? That is ridiculous. And you'll see that at the very end of this chapter as well. And what do they do? They begin to refer to the scriptures, number one, saying that the Christ should come from the family of David. Second Samuel chapter 7. The Christ should come from the family of David, not understanding that Jesus does descend from the house of David. And they also continue to say, and that David, this, and he should come from the village of David, that is in Bethlehem. Once again, referring to, what is it, Micah chapter four or five or whatever, Bethlehem Ephrata. Oh, even though you are little amongst the clans of Judea, but out of he, out of you shall he come who will be ruler of my people, quoting Micah. But anyway, so the people don't understand the origins of Jesus. They only see that he believed that he comes from Galilee, not understanding he was born of Bethlehem. So they have a negative view of Jesus because he comes from what? From Galilee. And then there's the division of what? He is the prophet. He is the Messiah. So we just got a whole bunch of confusion about Jesus. And all of this really comes from when Jesus gave that proclamation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. So this stirs up the people again. And remember, we are still at the Feast of Booths. And we see all of this division about just who Jesus is. And that's what verse number 43 says. But in the end, what? Some of them, and we want to keep in mind, we have seen this earlier. And if you haven't looked at it again, you got to go watch, see the thing that I said about Jesus in 
coming to the feast at the time that he came to the feast, as well as the people wanting to seize Jesus. Remember, the idea is not to seize him and do good things, it's to seize him in order to put him to death. All right. But we go right back again to this issue about some of them wanted to seize him, seizing him to put him to death. That is the understanding that the text is trying to give us. It is not seizing him to arrest him, seizing him that he might be put to death. But remember, the whole issue is, again, previous video, Jesus must die according to the will and plan of God, according to the time that God has set for Jesus to die, which would be in the feast of the Passover months which would be months later than this, okay? Months later than this present time, he must die according to the manner in which God has determined him to die, that he is to be put upon a tree. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. He must die by crucifixion and not by stoning. The Jewish uh, form of capital punishment was stoning. Jesus had to die by way of crucifixion placed on a tree. This was the will of God. He had to die by being betrayed. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me after some. But anyway, he had to die according to the sovereign plan, time, will, place of God. He could not die at this time. So therefore, what am I trying to say? As we stated in that previous video, this is providential. This is the hand of God providing protection for Jesus. Why? Even though they wanted to seize him so that they can have him put to death, they were not able to do so. God did not permit it. Jesus was not pushing his time, but God was sovereignly protecting him until the appointed time of his death. And only when God says he should die, how he should die, the means by his death, only then can Jesus be put to death. So what do we see once again in chapter seven? We see God protecting Jesus because it was not time for him to die. But remember early in chapter seven, the Jewish priests had already sent soldiers, Levitical soldiers to arrest Jesus. They had already sent those soldiers to arrest Jesus. And these soldiers have been listening to Jesus teach and preach, especially when Jesus just taught and preached what on that last day. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. So these soldiers are listening to Jesus teach and preach. And remember the atmosphere that we are being left with in verse number 44. Some of them want to arrest him. The soldiers are sent to arrest Jesus. Okay. So with that, now let's continue to move. Let's bring the chapter to a close. The officers, verse number 45, then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Okay, so now what do we have? Those uh, uh, Levitical soldiers 
who were sent of the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus now return back to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is looking at him and okay, where's Jesus? We sent you to arrest him. Where is he? And look at the response of the soldiers. The soldiers simply said, no one has ever spoken as he has spoken. Okay, I'm not going to get, ex ex I'm excited enough. Whatever Jesus said, the dynamic, the charismatic, the spirit, and this is the whole bottom line of it. It's not about a man. This is God in man. God as a man who speaks by the spirit of God, by the fullness. What did Peter say? For God does not give the spirit to him by measure. He has the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. You can imagine when Jesus stands and cries out. You know, sometimes we get move as the Holy Spirit works in the preaching of men. Imagine how the Holy Spirit worked when Jesus began to speak. When God in the flesh began to speak, imagine how the Spirit could move folk. Here's what happened with the soldiers. His message, his words were so Spirit-empowered that it, it arrested them it prevented them from moving against Jesus. So they had to return back to the ones who sent them empty handed. And they said, let me talk like I want to talk. We never heard nobody preach like that. His preaching was of such a character until, I don't know, we just couldn't do nothing. <laughs> let me stop on all this bad grammar. <laughs> That's what they said. We, 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 I don't know. We just couldn't. He spoke in such a way. It just prevented us from doing anything to him. And so this drew anger from amongst the Pharisees. They, they were wanting Jesus to be arrested because they were going to do something to him. But again, remember what I just said. God was not willing. It's not the time. So I don't care what you want to do. Everything must work according to the sovereign timetable of God. So they began to say, what? You haven't believed in him, have you? You're not being persuaded by Jesus, I know. And then they begin to look around, you can imagine, to other Pharisees. And I know no other Pharisees are believing in him. But of a truth, the scripture teaches that some of the Pharisees were actually believing in Jesus, but they were afraid to confess him because of what the rulers were saying. They would be put out of the synagogue. So some of the Pharisees actually did, but the whole point is the rulers of the Sanhedrin are angry because of the failure of the, the, the soldiers to arrest Jesus. They're wondering that they're trying to stop this potential spread of people believing in Jesus. And they surely don't want any of the leaders of the people, especially the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were the teachers of the common people. The Pharisees stood in the role of teaching the populace, okay? They definitely did not want a Pharisee believing that Jesus was the Messiah. So what did they say? No Pharisees have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, have they? And then they say, concerning the crowd, what? You remember the crowd was saying, what? He's a prophet. And then 
Some were saying, oh, no, he's the Messiah. And then even earlier, remember when Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? Some of them were even believing that he was some great man, maybe like one of the prophets, Elijah or something like that. You got it? So they were thinking something great of him. So what does he say? What does these Pharisees say? This crowd, because of their not outright rejecting Jesus. You see it now? They're not right outright rejecting Jesus, believing he might be the prophet of Moses or believing he might even be the Messiah. This crowd who does not know the law. And that's how the Pharisees understood and saw the common people of their day. They did not know the law and therefore are accursed. Now imagine that. Wow, that is a statement of great arrogance on the side of the Pharisee and is also a statement of great condescension. They thought nothing of the uneducated man. They thought nothing of the man who did not know the writings of the Torah, the unlearned man. So they saw the crowd because they were simply beginning or considering believing that Jesus might possibly be a great spiritual figure, the prophet, or even the Messiah, you are accursed. Because if you knew the law, you would absolutely reject Jesus. But actually, it was the Pharisees themselves who are accursed. And that's what Jesus said. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He said it again and again and again. It's not the people who were the ones accursed. It was not the people who were the ones ignorant. It was the blind Pharisees. But anyway, so with that, they looked down on the people with great condescension because they were uneducated. Now, okay, let's bring it on down. What happened? Because remember, this is the idea. This is the setting of a court scenario. What do I mean? These religious leaders, these are men of the Sanhedrin. Their whole point is to provide a court environment concerned with regard to the law of Moses. They wanted to be, have Jesus brought to them, but they weren't bringing Jesus. To, they weren't desiring to have Jesus brought to them to give Jesus a fair hearing. That was not the desire. As we see in the ultimate time when Jesus was finally brought to them, it wasn't to look for fairness. This was to bring, bring Jesus to them for the sole purpose of finding him guilty and having him put to death. They weren't trying to get justice. They were trying to bring, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. That is put him to death. That's why we keep saying over and over and over. They wanted to seize him. What did Jesus say to them? Why do you seek to kill me? These leaders were not concerned with justice. They were concerned with simply getting rid of Jesus, getting rid of his prophetic and his, his messianic claim and ultimately having him executed. And this is what we see in the following verses in response to the leaders. One stands in particular. 49, 40, I'm sorry, 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? 
Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Ending. Okay. So now Nicodemus responds and Nicodemus reminds them that their system is supposedly supposed to be a system of justice. And in a true system of justice, the one who is who is being accused has a right to defend himself. So Nicodemus reminds them concerning their own rules and their own religious system. Our law does not condemn a man without allowing the man to, to defend himself first, does it? And so Nicodemus is right, but it shows the mind of the Sanhedrin. It shows the mind of the rulers of the people. They were not considering giving Jesus a fair trial. The trial was nothing more than a hoax. It was nothing more than a go through the motion because we've already made up our mind. We're just going to simply try to do all the stuff to reach the verdict we have already determined. Our verdict is to that he is guilty and our decision is that he should be put to death. So all we're going to do is try to get that in motion. Nicodemus says this is wrong and this is a farce of our own justice system. How do they respond to Nicodemus? They respond with cutting and biting words to Nicodemus. Notice Nicodemus was one of them. Remember, it was Nicodemus in John chapter three who came to Jesus or one of the rulers in the Sanhedrin who came to Jesus by night and said, we believe that you indeed are a teacher who has come from God. Why? Because no man can do the things that you are doing except God has sent him. It is this Nicodemus who was struggling with what to think and believe about Jesus, what to think and believe about what Jesus was claiming about himself and Jesus' teachings. He was struggling with these things. It is this same Nicodemus at the end of the gospel, at the time of Jesus' life, at when he was killed, this same Nicodemus participated in preparing Jesus' body for burial. He was a believer in Christ. But at this time, he's not so much a believer. He is on that process, that road of coming to faith. So he stands to defend Jesus in such a manner. But enough of that. With biting words, they attack Nicodemus and say, oh, are you from Galilee too? Are you not from Galilee? Are you not from this pathetic place? <laughs> Search the scripture. No prophet comes from Galilee, does it? No. And that was the end of the verdict as they once again notice how they tried to attack Jesus's origin as they believed from Galilee. And again, what was the mindset concerning Galilee? Galilee is a place of nothingness. No great uh, seminary, if you'll let me say it this way. No great rabbinic institutions place of unlearned and ignorant people and this is where Jesus comes from and so where do you see in scripture where a prophet actually comes from Galilee and that's how they end their discussion okay all right we're done and I'm stopping there uh, in chapter 7 so basically what we see is the end of the feast of booze where Jesus ultimately says at the very end and seeing that little grand procession bringing the water and singing, we draw water from the wells of salvation joyously. Jesus said, no, you come to me. And when you come to me, I'll give you that water. 
and this he spoke of the Spirit, we already know, which both he and the Father will send after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And anyway, it ends with the whole idea of their ultimate rejection of Jesus. And that's basically what we see. All right, enough. Thanks for joining me, guys. With that, join me next time as we get into chapter 8. But it's going to kind of move. It's going to be a little bit different. A little bit different when we get into chapter 8 than what you've usually heard. I'll talk about all of that once I get into chapter 8. All right. But anyway... Let me say once again, if the Lord has moved your heart to support this ministry, if you are blessed by these teachings, will you support this ministry? There is a link in the description that you can always click on right there, and it'll show you what you can do to contribute to help me to continue to bring you these lessons. But anyway, for all of those who have participated and given, thank you guys, and I'll see you all next time.